Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life He gives. Perhaps appropriately, we're kicking off part two of our series. We've been looking at the life of David. Part one was David uh, formed in waiting, and we were kind of engaged with this story looking at David's life as he began as a shepherd, the youngest of seven sons, and he is anointed by the prophet Samuel as the future king of Israel. And then David finds himself in this place of waiting. He conquers Goliath. He's brought into the palace. He is given authority. And we see like David has a lot of victories um, as a warrior. So he's a victorious warrior. And eventually the king, King Saul, gets jealous and envious of David and wants to kill him. And so David becomes a fugitive. He's on the run. He's a refugee. And so that's kind of what we see in 1 Samuel 17 through the end of 1 Samuel moving into 2 Samuel. And we're going to be moving into a time in, in, in David's life where he ascends to the throne. He's actually um, kind of becomes the king. And uh, though we're transitioning from this kind of part one formed in waiting. How many of you still know that uh, as we head into 2 Samuel, David's still being formed, right? Like there's still some work that's undone in David's life and God is still working on him. And I believe this, that, that on this side of eternity, the work of formation in our lives is always ongoing. And so we're going to see David, he finally becomes king, but we're also going to see that things are far from for easy for him and 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 things just kind of aren't made right, not only around him but within him as well. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Have you ever uh, thought like you were over an issue or it, that you'd grown beyond a certain point, but then at some point, someone says something, or uh, you read something, or, or something happens, and it brings up like a, a pain, or a trauma, or something that you were past, but you kind of realize, oh, maybe I'm not. Any, any of you know what I'm talking about? Any of you can relate? I remember uh, in, in college, someone gave me a book, and they said, you might like this book, Ian. And it was a book called To Own a Dragon, by Donald Miller, and it was kind of a memoir, and the subtitle was Reflections on Growing Up Without a Father. And I thought, oh, that's an odd book to give someone. Um, and I also didn't grow up with, I grew up with my father, I didn't grow up without a father, but I, I read this, and Donald Miller's kind of words in that book brought up all sorts of things that I thought weren't an issue or were no longer an issue or that I had grown beyond kind of like pains and heartache within myself. It kind of gave words to that. And I was like, huh, maybe there's still some work that needs to get done. So just saying there's some daddy issues, I guess. I don't know. This is, a, is this a safe space? <laughs> it's a safe space. I love you guys. Okay. But yeah, 
anyone can relate. You thought you've grown beyond a certain point. You thought that thing was not an issue. Someone says something. You read something. Something happens. You're like, no, that's still an issue. And so um, I, I, I think it's important to take time to, like, celebrate. Oh, yeah, like, there was this time in my life, and now there's this time to celebrate and honor all of the ways in which you've changed, you've grown, in which you're not the same person that you were. But it's also important but hard to open our hearts to the raw, painful, messy work of formation. And so this is kind of part two. Welcome to it. We're going to be doing this together, a broken, uncontrite heart. This is how, how David explains this type of work. He says this, and he prays this, actually, in Psalm 51, uh, in one of those seasons where he was realizing he didn't have it all together. He prays this to God. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God. You will not despise. Prayers like Psalm 51 are not easy to pray. And they don't often come from easy places in our lives. Following Jesus, being formed by God, is not always easy. But I'll say this about that path, about that journey. It's a path that leads to peace from anxiety, freedom from our shame, wholeness from our brokenness, and forgiveness for our sins. That journey, that path is difficult, but it's worth it. Maybe there's one of those things. Do any of those things sound good? Peace from anxiety, wholeness from brokenness, forgiveness for sins, right? Freedom from shame? Sounds nice to me. Hard work, though. Um, but here's the paradox, there's something that I think is a paradox, that in many ways the work of formation is a paradox in that we walk that path, we do that work, but not because it's the path or it's the work that gets us to that place. The, the thing that gets us peace from anxiety, freedom from shame, forgiveness for sins is actually just grace. It's just the free gift of God, and so that's we're going to look. We're going to be looking at a story um, in this morning's text that really kind of highlights this idea. So there's this hard work that happens, but we go through that work because there has been a grace given to us, and that grace is given freely. We're looking at the story of David and Mephibosheth. Say Mephibosheth. <laughs> Just seeing if y'all are awake. Let's try that again. Can everyone say Mephibosheth? Oh, love y'all. Okay. The adults are gone. I'm the adult in the room. I can be a little Pentecostal if I want to be in my preaching. I'm just making sure you guys are awake. I'm making sure I'm awake as well. Um, so we're going to be looking at the story of David and Mephibosheth. But before we do, I'm going to give you a brief overview of where we're at, where we're going. So we talked a little bit about the early part of David's life, shepherd, anointed king by Samuel. He's in a place of waiting. He's invited into the palace. He's uh, given authority as a prince. He's a victorious warrior, and then he's a fugitive and a refugee. Okay? It's a worse than the Cliff Notes version. Um, 
We turned to 2 Samuel. We finished 1 Samuel last week. As you turn to 2 Samuel, it's a continuation of the David story, but it's very much a transition. And so if you were to read through it, you're going to see in, in chapter 1, David gets a report. He gets a report that Jonathan, his friend, and King Saul have been killed in battle. So David wasn't a part of this battle. He was somewhere else. He gets word. Um, it's an Amalekite who delivers the word. The Amalekite thinks, oh, David is going to give me a spot because David's probably the new king, a, new, a spot in the new regime. But David's torn up about this. He's upset. He, he instructs everyone to enter a time of mourning um, because even though him and Saul had their differences, to say the least, Saul wanted to kill David, David refused, as he said, in the book of Samuel, to touch the Lord's anointed. He recognized the role of Saul as king, and he refused to, to take that authority through violence. In fact, he refused violence against Saul. And so um, the story then gets really chaotic. You can kind of read through it. We might explore it a little bit more um, next week, but the story gets really chaotic. It's very violent. Power begins to consolidate around David um, as the likely kind of new king. It's very messy. It's very bloody um, chapters. So we're not going to read those chapters today, not because they're messy and bloody, but just because we're not going to today. So <laughs> another time, maybe next week. You guys, you can take a poll now. Next week, you want me to cover those chapters? No, okay. Um, the question I think in these chapters becomes, how will David acquire power? David has been anointed to be the next king by the prophet Samuel, but how will he acquire power? Will it be through violence and coercion and through taking? Well, and, and more importantly, the question begins to be asked in these chapters, what kind of king will David be? What kind of person will David be? How will he exert authority? And so there's all of this chaos, all of this blood, all this mess, and then inserted in the middle of these chapters in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, there's one verse that just seems as if it has nothing to do with anything else around it. So I'm going to read that for us. Samuel 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Now, on first inspection, this verse is seemingly strange where it's placed, if you were to kind of read chapters 2, 3, 4, 5. But this verse actually sits directly in the middle between two chapters. First Samuel 20, which Adam preached a sermon on a few weeks ago, and 2 Samuel chapter 9. And both of those chapters have one primary theme. Are you guys okay with being a little bit like Bible nerds today? Both of those chapters had one primary theme, and that was David's covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness towards his friend Jonathan. So that's what 1 Samuel 
chapter 20 is about, and that's what 2 Samuel chapter 9 is about. And this verse where Mephibosheth comes up sits kind of directly in the middle, kind of pointing to there's a connection between these two stories. So do we want to get into it? Okay, let's get into it. We're going to fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's a short chapter. I love short chapters, especially in like Bible reading plans. When you get to them, you're like, there's no genealogies here. This is amazing. It's just 13 verses. So we're going to read that together. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone left, still left, of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Pause for a moment. This word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. And it speaks to this idea of not only just like kindness, just like being nice. My daughter Zia is really nice. If you haven't met Zia, she's the nicest. She's downstairs. She'll say hi to you later. Kayla's very nice. I don't know how nice I am. I try. But um, this, this kindness speaks of something deeper. It's a covenant commit, committed against all odds uh, in, in the face of perhaps uh, peril or my, my own self, uh, kindness towards someone else, loyalty, faithfulness, thick as thieves uh, kind of uh, uh, loyalty to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake, David's friend, who's now dead. Verse 2, Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. Say Lodabar. Lodabar. That's a fun word. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Emil. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. At your service, he replied. Verse 7, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that, began, that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servant's sons are to farm the land for him and to bring in crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So it must have been a lot of land that required that many people to take care of it. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table 
And then the, the story kind of ends again by reminding us that he was lame in both feet. Um, I think it's kind of a, a rude way to end the story. Um, but that's how it ends. Now, in the David story, particularly if you were to read this portion of David's story, this account is a needed reprieve. There's a lot of blood, there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of what is going on here. And then you have this beautiful story of restoration um, in, a, in a narrative that has been kind of chaotic. And so this is kind of like a breath of fresh air. Now, I'll say this, for all of David's faults, of which there are many, and they're abundantly clear kind of throughout his story, his covenant loyalty and friendship towards Jonathan, it's never been in question. And this story then becomes the pinnacle of David's loyalty to his friend Jonathan. But here's what I think is fascinating, because for us, this story, in many ways, it's a type it's a foreshadowing of what's to come in Jesus and the gospel. And so when we read a story about a king who bestows mercy on someone who's considered broken and undeserving on behalf of the kindness and covenant kindness towards a son, no less a son who has died, it's hard not to draw the parallels, right? This is like when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, you, and you're like, oh yeah, Aslan's Jesus, right? That's kind of like when you read the story, you're like, the parallels are pretty clear. There's a king who bestows mercy on someone who's considered broken and undeserving of mercy on behalf of a son and covenant kindness towards that son. And so um, we could kind of dig a little bit deeper in all of the, the kind of typology in this story, but I think it might be unproductive for the time that we have there this morning to kind of get crazy nerdy, but I think it would be fitting for us to consider the character of Mephibosheth a bit more, because I suspect there are more ways we are like Mephibosheth than we'd care to admit, because in that typing, in that foreshadowing, uh, we are the Mephibosheth. So, what do we know about Mephibosheth? When Mephibosheth was just five years old, he was dropped and he ended up becoming disabled. We don't know the exact issues, but we're told his feet didn't work properly. And so we know that about him. What else do we know about him? We know who he is. He's the grandson of a king, King Saul, and he's the son of a prince, Jonathan, David's friends. Um, and so we know about who he is, we know about his condition, his disability. And in 2 Samuel 9, we learn a little bit more about Mephibosheth. David asks, where is he? In verse 4, right? So we learn what kind of where Mephibosheth has been since we learned of who he was in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Ziba answered, he is at the house of Makir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. That's where he is. He's in Lodabar. So King David had, brought, had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Emil. David wants to know where Mephibosheth is, and we're told he's in Lodabar. Lodabar 
if translated literally means no word. So no word, or it could be translated as no thing. Uh, another way it could be translated as is no pastures. It's a place where there's no word. Uh, it's a place of isolation. It's a, it's a no thing place. It, um, there are no pastures. This is not a place, it's not a good place to settle. Mephibosheth has found himself in a nowhere town, a place of isolation, desolation. Uh, this is like the sticks or the boonies, but worse. Uh, I, I grew up in a kind of a sticks, boonies town in Hawaii. There's a town called Pauilo. It was an old sugarcane plantation town, and it was really like the sticks. Like the first few years of my life, we had like outhouse sticks. How many of you know that's like a different kind of sticks? Yeah, so this is like the sticks. This is the boonies. And you know what? I've driven through some like nowhere towns here in Vermont. Like think, think of places like the Neck. But the difference between like Pauilo or like these towns in Vermont, these kind of like nowhere towns, is those places, they're like lush, fertile, beautiful. You ever driven through those places near like there's lakes and ponds and mountains and there's pastures, right? That's not Lodabar. Lodabar, uh, there's something I learned, you know, about the naming of places in the ancient Near East. They're often very literal. And so, like, if a place is called, like, the wilderness or place of desolation or there's nothing there, there's usually nothing there. Just, like, desert, ground, nothing. Um, I got to visit uh, Israel and Jordan a few years ago, um, and it kind of helps with your ability to kind of imagine a place like this. I was kind of reminded of, there's this, this uh, story where um, in Jonah, where he, like the tree he's under withers and he curses it because it doesn't provide him shade anymore. And when I was in Jordan, it was 120 degrees. And if you're underneath like a, a canopy where there was a little bit of shade, it was like 15 it felt like 15, 20 degrees cooler, right? And so you kind of have this imagination of like Lodabar being like a desolate, isolated place. This is not like a, a spot, like a cabin in the neck where you got like overlooking Lake Caspian, right? No, this is not that. This is a nowhere place. Mephibosheth's life, if you think about it, began in a pretty good position. But that position was taken away from him. His family was killed, and he ended up in Lodabar, disabled. I wonder if any of us would describe the state of our lives, the state of our soul, in some ways as a Lodabar place. Facing some form of isolation or desolation, everything around us is crumbling. Perhaps we're, we're experiencing isolation. We found ourselves kind of in a lonely place. Maybe it's not so serious. Maybe we just feel stuck, like we're in that same old, same old, like we've been in this place. This is not the place we want to be or should be. We've found ourselves there, um, perhaps uh, at no fault of our own. We're just kind of there in that place. Perhaps we're paralyzed by a wound, maybe a wound that was no fault of our own, but we're in a Lodabar 
place. We've found ourselves in Lodabar, and it's not a good place. Does it make sense to anyone? The Lodabar place? It's not a good place. Um, I will say this as an aside. I think God can sometimes use Lodabars to work out something good in our lives. As I read this story, and especially the preceding chapters, part of me wonders if, as you read through the chapters that came before this, if Lodabar was like a blessing in disguise for Mephibosheth. Because what you see is you see Saul's descendants and family, you kind of see them exterminated, essentially. And I wonder if Mephibosheth kind of goes under the radar because he's forgotten in Lodabar. I don't know. Perhaps there's some form of mercy here going on. Maybe. Regardless, I want to be abundantly clear. God's desire for Mephibosheth, God's desire for you, is not to remain in Lodabar. That's not what God wants. David knows that that's not the place for Mephibosheth, and he gets him out. God wants to rescue us from our own Lodabar whatever that might be. David sends Ziba to get him. God sends the Holy Spirit to get us out. I believe that. Uh, You might be in Lodabar, maybe because something of your own doing, or maybe because something has been done to you, happened to you, and I want you to know this. You're not forgotten in Lodabar. You're not forsaken in Lodabar. God sees you. In the same way that David went out and found Mephibosheth, God wants to find you. You are not forgotten. You are not forsaken. So Mephibosheth is brought out of Lodabar and into the palace of King David. He was probably terrified, right? David wasn't like directly responsible, if you read through the chapters, for like the extermination of Saul's descendants. But that's, I guarantee you that was in Mephibosheth's mind. Like, is David going to kill me? And so he's afraid. And so we we read what happens. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. We all said it, too, earlier. The first thing David says to him is his name, Mephibosheth. If we read closely, and you're reading closely along with me, Ziba doesn't give David his name earlier in the story. We're just told Jonathan had a son. We're told his condition. We're told where he is. So we're not told that David knows his name, but apparently David knows. I actually think this is an intentional literary device in the narrative. Mephibosheth came from Lodabar, a nowhere place, a no-word place, a no-thing place for nobodies. But that's not who... Mephibosheth is to David. David knows him. And he sees him as someone who he can extend his covenant kindness to on behalf of Jonathan's sake. That's beautiful. We continue reading. At your service, Mephibosheth replied. And then David says, don't be afraid. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Not only does David call him by name, but he extends this covenant kindness 
to him. David restores dignity and goodness to Mephibosheth, who is found broken in Lodabar. And, and one of the reasons I think this story is so powerful to me is it parallels the gospel narrative, the gospel announcement. Gospel meaning good news announcement to us. When David calls Mephibosheth, he knows who he is. He knows he's battered and broken, right? The text makes that clear to us. It even ends on it oddly. David knows who he is, but when David calls Mephibosheth by name, he also knows he's the relative of Jonathan, whom he loved. Uh, The story we believe about ourselves, the story we believe about others, the story others believe about us, in our context is rarely nuanced. We often see either or, and so it's, we turn an eye to what's broken, like it's all good, whatever feels right. Um, I'm good, nothing's wrong. Um, we have a tendency to do that. Or we only see what's broken and in disrepair. Apparently, David kind of sees both here in Mephibosheth. When God calls us by name, God sees both. That can be a painful reality. It's kind of why there's a whole season of Lent dedicated to opening our hearts to God in repentance and acknowledging what's broken about ourselves, about the world we live in, about life. Ash Wednesday starts with the kind of morbid liturgy to the dust we came and to the dust we shall return, right? Uh, Sufyan sings, we're all going to (laughs) die. Surprise! That's what Lent is about, recognizing and naming our brokenness. It's a part of the story. But Mephibosheth's story doesn't start in brokenness, and the gospel's origin story and the larger story of Scripture doesn't begin in brokenness. How does Scripture begin? Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there's a sequence of events in which the world is created, and when God creates, he declares it good. Yes, there's some Sunday school students in here. When God creates, he he creates good, and it leads to this pinnacle of man and woman, of humans being created, and God declares it very good. And it says that man and woman are made in the image of God. They're given the imago Dei. And so it's part, it's how the story starts. You get the Genesis 3, you have the fall, right? Uh, in Mephibosheth's story, you have the fall, and it leads to brokenness. It leads to, se- it leads to separation, not only between man and God, but man and each other, right? And so you see Adam and Eve are separated from God's presence, and then you see in chapter 4, you see uh, the story of Cain and Abel, um, Man and man, and so things are fractured, things are broken, right? Um, you don't need a preacher to tell you that. We know the world is fractured and broken. We know that we are fractured and broken, right? But it's important to recognize both. It's also important to recognize where the st- story starts and where the story is going. 
Mephibosheth's story doesn't start with brokenness, right? He starts in a pretty good place. The story of scripture, the story of the gospel, recognizes at its core the imago day in each and every one of us. It recognizes the brokenness, but it also recognizes where it's going, which is restoration. If we can get this in some way, in little ways, as a power to change us, transform us, the stories we tell about ourselves, the stories we tell about others, and it transforms the narratives of what we think others think about us as well. Because we're found in Lodabar, but through Jesus, Scripture says this, through Jesus, we become children of God and recipients of the covenant kindness of God, and we receive the, the very righteousness of Jesus. It's the gospel. Can I get an amen? I need more gospel good news in my life, right? This story reminds me of that. I wish I had like a great way of like, these are five points of what's awesome about the story that you can do right now. Honestly, if you can just be reminded that God is with you, that you're not forsaken, that the plan that God has for you ends in restoration, I'm kind of okay with you leaving with that point today. Um, I'll give you some homework because Adam would want me to give you homework and I'm apparently the adult in the room. This Lent, uh, I'm going to invite you to join us as a church family together in being with Jesus together through a couple practices. Abby made a Lenten reader. I would hold it up for you right now, but I have a feeling those Lenten readers are also in Adam's car in Boston. I can't confirm that's where they are, but I have a feeling that's where they might be. But you can go to our website, wellchurchvt.com slash Lent, L-E-N-T, and you can download the reader there. And maybe there will be another adult in the room next week who can help me find those. <laughs> so we can hand you a physical copy because you kind of want a physical copy. Um, and there's... Uh, scriptures to read, and there's questions to be asked, and prayers to pray in that Lent reader, and just a little short thing daily until we get to Easter. Um, also, there are going to be audio reflections on our podcast page dropped every Sunday. Got dropped this Sunday. Did any of you see it? Hallelujah. It worked. I'm not the administrator. There's a reason I'm not the administrator, but at least I could click send on that. Jordan got it uploaded. Thank you, Jordan. Edited the podcast. Those are going to be releasing every Sunday, so you can engage those. And those are an opportunity to practice being with Jesus together. And those are ongoing ways of reminding ourselves, God is with you. God is for you. God has a plan for you. And that plan is that you would be restored, that you would experience freedom uh, from your shame, peace in your anxiety, wholeness in your brokenness, forgiveness from your sins. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.